Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Surf Heater Podcast. Today's guest is Peter Belden. Peter is a Newport Beach lifeguard turned founder of the board club. Today, our topics include his upbringing in the water, both in the ocean and in the chlorine, playing water polo not only at Newport Harbor, but winning a national championship at UCLA. We talk about his days and career post-college. We also touch on the death of Ben Carlson, a lifeguard who drowned in the light of duty. Ben's an American hero. He uh, affected the community, and we talk about how his death did affect the community. We talk about how that also affected Peter and ultimately sent him on a journey to Indonesia and Australia where the epiphany came to him to start a board club to bring together the community uh, through surfing. So we touch on the board club, we explain what that means if you're not familiar with it. We talk about the challenges of running a business and the challenges of, of the board club. We talk about his, his future plans. If you're in the area of Newport Beach, he's a, he's a great guy, so, so stop by and, and grab a board and go surf, and I'll see you out there. and Enjoy the episode. Hey, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. So how, how was this morning? You get out there and, and surf? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, no, we just got like a nice swell coming in, and it was great. Got the local Newport Harbor surf team in the club. You know, told them a little bit about it and let everybody run out and grab a board, and um, they had fun. I mean, the whole point is to grab stuff you've never really ridden before, and guys were pumped on uh, getting on some different stuff. That's awesome. And what kind of – do you – so you're working with the Harbor surf team a little bit. Do you mostly just have like high-performance surfboards, or is it kind of a whole range of boards? Yeah, it's a huge range, and actually, it's it's almost a little bit of the opposite of that. You know, one of the things I found early on was, you know, people are really familiar with their typical shortboards and, and kind of the variances between those, but, um, you know, what people are really interested in are those boards that they want to ride occasionally that are a little outside the norm, something different, but they don't want to drop $600,000 on some of these boards, you know, and I've got them here. So a lot of guys took out twin fins, single fins. You know, all these, you know, displacement holes, you know, we've got all this crazy stuff and, um, yeah, you got a bunch of those boards to access. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. I actually rode one of your, your single fins the other weekend. Um, and it, I've never really ridden a single fin before. And I don't think without, without your help, I mean, not a lot of my friends have single fins, so it's nice to have kind of a, an option and it actually helped my like high performance, if you could call it that, what I do surfing because it really makes you kind of draw different lines and I had a lot of fun um but let's just backtrack a little bit kind of go from the the beginning here um before before we'll get into the board club but kind of start at the beginning um so I was reading a little bit about you kind of here uh surfer uh lifeguard water polo man um kind of what what drew you to the water at a at a young age um, yeah, from day one, I was at the pool. I mean, my dad, he played water pole at UCI and UCLA and, um, you know, he was a lifeguard in Newport, you know, back in the seventies and eighties. So, you know, from day one, my dad was pushing me into, you know, getting the ocean and getting to aquatics and, you know, I loved it. It's been incredible. You know, I've been a lifeguard since I was 16 years old, coming up on 19 years doing that. Wow. 
you know, I was able to, uh, yeah, you know, I was body surfing at a young age. You know, my dad really pushed me into a lot of body surfing. So it's, yeah, it's a, you know, I love to spearfish. So there's, yeah, it's basically anything in the water. I'm, I'm game. Awesome. So you started in chlorine in the pool and then kind of went seawater. Do you, do you remember the first wave you, you ever caught? surfing um well yeah i mean actually yes chlorine and saltwater are about the same time okay doing that since day one and um now to be honest i wish i had some you know awesome you know you know story about my first wave and all that but yeah i think it was so long ago that uh but you know what i really remember are the trips you know i i learned actually how to surf um through some good friends the Bissells, and we'd do camping trips down to san alejo when i was a little kid you know we'd spend a whole weekend down there and did that all the time. That's basically where I learned to surf there in Blackies. Awesome. Yeah, I wish I had a good story. I feel like I need to make one up about my first wave. Because <laughs> um, I just remember my dad saying he's not going to buy me a surfboard until I can stand up on a boogie board. So yeah. that's kind of how I, I started. And it was probably just a slow, it's not like one wave. It was just kind of a slow progression for me. So trips down to Mexico, trips to Blackies. Did you immediately fall in love with with the the water surfing, or were you kind of hesitant there? No, I think it was natural. You know, I've been doing it for so long from day one, and um, you know, actually, if you're going to talk about one moment, I guess I remember, you know, being a little kid, my dad taking me out in red flag surf for the first time, and that thrill and like being scared but also excited, and then getting out of the water and being okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've been chasing that feeling the rest of my life. I love bigger waves, waves of consequence, and that rush you get. I mean, that's what I'm addicted to. And I mean, I guess that's kind of where it all started. You were a junior lifeguard, right? Yeah, yeah. From I mean, nine years old all the way till I was 15. Oh, I was the best. I mean, that's where I met so many of my best, you know, lifelong friends. You know, and it's you do a lot of cool things in that program. I think it's important for kids that are around the beach that they're familiar with with the ocean and you know, how to stay safe. And I think that's really important. And a lot of times, you know, that's why I like my varied background between lifeguarding, water polo, surfing, you know, it's diverse. And, you know, I think that really helps me. You know, there's a lot of surfers that just take the surfing route and there's a lot of things they don't know, you know, about staying safe in the water and just a lot of the things that are out there. So, you know, I I enjoy that varied background and, you know, I think junior lifeguards did that for me. Yeah, those kids that come out of that program, you can almost see when they're out in the water and how they move out in the water, um, if they've done that program or not. Just avoiding rips, using using the rips, and uh, they turn into usually really good surfers. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's, and then you can help other people, too. You know, when you're in the water and you see someone in trouble, you know, you feel a lot more confident being able to help somebody when you know what's going on. Right, exactly. You said you started being a lifeguard when you were 16 years old, so that was like a summer job when you were going to Newport Harbor? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, basically it's, you know, it's uh, you know getting a surf in in the morning, maybe water polo practice, and then it's, you know, sitting in the tower the rest of the day at the beach, and then hopefully another surf again, you know, before the sun goes down. So it's full day in the water. Busy days. And you got, we got summer coming up and they're, they're still running that program, right? I'm, I'm sure. Oh yeah. No, that's, it's, it's going strong. Started at about 50 kids. It's up to about 1300. Wow. So it's a, uh, it's a big program. Yeah. It's great for people around here and um, yeah, highly recommended. Okay. What years were you at, at Newport Harbor? So I was there uh, 90, 98 to, and I graduated uh, 2001. Okay. So you played water polo all four years. I read you were t- the Newport Harbor Male Athlete of the Year for the year 2000. How, how did that feel? No, it was awesome. Yeah, that was a surprise. You know, I figured it'd go to, you know, Chris Mandarino. That guy ended up playing football in the NFL. He's a stud, good yeah. buddy of mine. 
you know, so to get picked, uh, you know, against some guys like that was a uh, was an honor. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty cool. I feel like only at Newport Harbor. I mean, I'm sure there are other places, but that a swimmer and a water polo player can be male athlete of the year because I would have think it's like basketball, football, kind of a, a more typical sport. Oh, totally. You know, it's like, you know, but I appreciate the fact that they, you know, they give water polo the respect it deserves. It's a great sport, so that's that was pretty cool. And was was Barnett Coach Barnett there when when you were? Is that who you played under? <laughs> Oh yeah, no. I had Barnett my first two years, um, and then uh, yeah, and after that it was Brian Krutzkamp, and you know both great coaches. I mean, to be under Barnett, I mean he coached the Olympics. You know, to, to learn from a guy like that, I think is really what took me to the, the places I wanted to go, and you know eventually UCLA and won a national championship there. And I wow. think uh, a lot of that, you know, a lot of that's due to, to, to Coach Barnett and Krutzkamp. What What do you think? What made Barnett such an uh, effective coach and made so many legends come out of Newport Harbor? I, you know, it's funny. It's it's really the basic stuff. You know, he drilled fundamentals until you just hated him. Um, but, you know, I realized that later on. I went to UCLA where there's a lot of other great, talented players, but I realized a lot of them didn't have the fundamentals and just um, – and also just like the knowledge of the game that he was able to instill in me. You know, those two things are, you know, pretty simple. It's just running through X's and O's and then, you know, basic fundamentals in the water and I mean, it's it's not a big secret to success there, but it works. Do you play all four years at, at UCLA? Yeah, all four years at UCLA. Okay, and when did you win the the national championship? What what year? So that was uh, two thousand four, my senior year. Yeah, that's great. Won a won a CIF championship senior year in high school, and then you know championship senior year in college. So wow, going out on top is nice. Nice, that's awesome. So after college, you you had been kind of in the water. You're you're waterlogged. Did you did you kind of want to get out of the water, or did you want to like get a quote unquote like real job, or how how did that work right after college? Yeah. So after college, you know, water polo is amazing. It was a big part of my life, but um, that was always something I liked to do. I loved the camaraderie, being on a team, and all that. But you know, my true passion was surfing. So. You know, when I was done, you know, with, with school, I knew that I was putting water polo behind me and looking for other things to do. And yeah, at that point, you know, like a lot of people, wasn't quite sure. I actually got into the family business uh, in mobile home parks and became a you know, manufactured home dealer. So basically, learned to run some of the management side and then how to install manufactured homes, mobile homes. Um, nice. And eventually started started my own business doing that. Cool. So you kind of had had that uh, entrepreneurial um, itch from the from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think part of it is my whole life. I just I don't handle uh, people telling me what to do very well. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's a big part of it. Not to mention, I just um, you know I, I I enjoy that part. You know, there are great parts about you know like being your own boss and everything. And you know, a lot of times it's it can be overblown. You know, in terms of the romantic, sexy idea of being your own boss and an entrepreneur. And you know, a lot of the really good parts of it get highlighted, but. I think a lot of people don't understand or don't realize all the grunt work and the amount of time and everything that goes into running your own business. But, you know, that, 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 uh, that challenge is awesome. You know, I've loved it. This is, you know, the board club is now my second business I've started. So it's, um, I love it. I thrive on it and, uh, it's been fun. When was the first time that you might've realized that being your boss was not maybe going to be so easy? Yeah, that was a wake up call. I was pretty naive going into that. You know, I had bought into all those other things I was just talking about and quickly realized uh, you just, you know, you got to wear so many different hats. Um, and I think, you know, maybe it's my ego or, you know, I, you know, my belief and I can do it all. 
you know, kind of mentality. Um, I think that kind of held me back. And that's one of the things that I've really learned and been able to do well with the board club is that you should play to your strengths and outsource your weaknesses. Right. You know, there's certain things that I know I'm not good at and, you know, building the website, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, bang my head against the wall, learning how to do it, struggling. And then the final product, you know, isn't as good, you know, obviously as someone that does it professionally. And, you know, for me to invest a little bit of money into that would have been a much better use of my time and would have been better for the company as a whole. So it, it's those kind of things of recognizing what ne- you're not necessarily good at, finding someone that can do that well for you and someone you're, you know, you, you want to work with. And, uh, and, and that's going to make you successful. It's, it's not you trying to do everything. I think that's exactly what I needed to hear right now because I'm trying to build out this <laughs> website and it's, I'm spending hours on it and I look at it and it just looks, I, I feel like it looks so amateur and I, I think I need to get some, some help there. And, and while you're doing, while you're doing the, the manufactured homes, were you still, still lifeguarding, still surfing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, I mean, again, I guess that's when it's one of the perks, right? When you're doing a job like that, your, your, uh, schedule's flexible. So when the waves are good, I was surfing, um, and it allowed me to do that. So yeah, I was in the water quite a bit. Yeah, that that uh, you know, I was working out of a home office, and it gives me a lot of flexibility to be in the water. And and how did the the transition? Um, I I know you you somehow got into software sales. Um, how did you transition from the manufactured uh, homes to the the software sales? Yeah, that was that was a combination of a few things. So you know, I started the manufactured home business in like mid to late two thousand seven. So. You know, six months earlier, I probably would have made some good money, and six months later, I would have known, you know, not to start it after the whole uh, financial crash. So, right. timing just wasn't very good there. And you know, for about two years, I just struggled my way through it, and just realized, yeah, you know, it just wasn't wasn't the right time and place. I wasn't passionate about what I was doing, and it was time to do something new. I had spent my whole life in Newport and in, at UCLA, so I really hadn't left Southern California much. So. You know, some opportunities came up, and the tech industry was doing real well. I had good connections in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, so I said, "Hey, you know what? Let's let's move up there and, and give that a shot." So um, it was it was great, you know, seeing a you know living in a city, you know, getting to experience that. I have to say, after two and a half years, it was um, um, cities are not for me, right? <laughs> but but it was a good experience, you know. It's uh, meet different new cool people and the tech industry. It, you know, again, that was kind of a fish out of water there, but it was, a, it was a great challenge. And so many of the things that I learned in that industry is helping me here today with the board club. That's that's great. I'm in uh, I'm in tech sales right now up in San Francisco, and I I kind of feel like a fish out of water too with my background of surfing. I just I sell people that I surf, and they're like, "Aren't there sharks out there? Isn't it cold out there?" <laughs> like it's just they don't even know. It's hard. It's hard to relate sometimes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, where, where did you live in, in San Francisco or, or in the Bay Area? Yeah, no, I was in the city. I was at like Bush and Webster for a little bit and then Jackson and Hyde. So I was there around a little bit, but yeah, primarily in the city. You know, it's so easy to get around and, you know, there's a lot of good things I loved about it. But uh, it was a little bit of a trek out to Ocean Beach. Yep. You know, it's it's not very far, but, you know, with traffic and winding roads and all that, it can take a little while. But Yep. It's a trek to get there, and then it's a trek to get out the paddle out to the waves once you're there. <laughs> you know, never. I have to say, you know, never in my life have I not made it out until I got to uh, Ocean Beach. You know, oh. and it's happened to be twice. I mean, you know, it's just, just grinding away for thirty minutes, and you put your tail between your legs and come back in. It's it's a humbling experience. The walk of shame. <laughs> uh, um, and so, do you remember the moment when you? 
uh, we're in software sales and you just said, this is not for me or I need to not be doing this anymore? Yeah. And that was pretty clear. So, you know, after San Francisco, I, I got another tech job doing uh, data analytics, you know, for a software company down in Santa Monica, mm-hmm. you know, did that for a while. And I already kind of knew, I mean, it was in the back of my head. Um, but what really happened, um, so a good friend of mine, fellow lifeguard, Ben Carlson, I mean, probably one of the most incredible watermen that I know, one of the best lifeguards, best surfers, I mean, just all around stud. Um, he drowned on a rescue working on a big day in Newport. And I mean, that really shook me up. He was someone that I looked up to, someone I felt was a peer as a waterman. And, you know, it just hit me, you know what, life's, life's too short. You never know when you're going to go. And I was looking at my current situation and, you know, I wasn't happy. I was chasing career advancement and money and not happiness. And I just said, you know what, if, if it can happen to Ben anytime, it can certainly happen to me. So that's when I, I said, you know what, it's, it's time. So yeah, I quit my job. I sold my car. I put everything into a storage unit and said, I'm out of here. You know, I'm going to go travel the world, see what's out there, get a new perspective on life and really figure out what I want to do next. And that, so that was the summer of, of 2014. Were you, were you lifeguarding at that point or were you still in, in Santa Monica? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, what's nice about lifeguarding. You know, I've been able to keep it on the side. So, you know, once that happened, I was able to quit that job in Santa Monica and it was about July. And so for the rest of the summer, you know, I was able to get prepped for my trip, make some money and save up a bit and, you know, get back in the water. And I'm telling you, you know, on, on Friday, I, I left my, <laughs> my cubicle where I was cold calling and emailing and all this stuff. And, um, you know, pretty much the next day I was on the beach, you know, making rescues and surfing and, Man, it was night and day. I mean, I feel like the weight had been lifting off my shoulders. And how how was the how was the lifeguard community? How did it react um, after? Like, how how has that changed the lifeguard community since Ben Carlson died? Oh, it brought us together. You know, it's you know, it, there's a little over two hundred lifeguards in the department, and you know, it's you work with certain people a lot through the summers and all that, but. Um, it really brought us all together. It really showed that this is a team. We're here for each other. You know, the rescue effort was absolutely incredible for multiple agencies, too. It wasn't just within Newport. It was uh, it was the entire lifeguard community throughout California and even the world. Yeah. It really had it, it had ripple effects everywhere. So, um, it, you know what? It's There were a lot of silver linings. I mean, it's, the, it's incredibly sad, and, and I miss him. We all miss him. Um, but it's it's incredible what he did to that community and how everybody felt about him and how it brought everyone together, especially within Newport too. You know the general community in Newport. Yeah, what a, what a sacrifice! And now he has that nice nice statue out there, and um, kind of I, I feel even even up here that the community has been brought together through that. So if there's a silver lining, that's that's it. Yeah. And when you're when you were um, packing up the storage unit, did you have any doubts in your mind? Like, were you like, "Am I making the right choice? Am I going to be a beach bum for the rest of my life, or am I ever going to be be successful?" Um, so that didn't really hit me until like you know probably a day or two before I was leaving. You know, it was all good and rosy, and then the reality as I'm like starting to pack and what I'm doing, and I'm going by myself and all this, and yeah, I started you know, creeping in going, maybe this is a little crazy. And <laughs> cause at the time when I made that decision, it just, it wasn't even a hard one. Like I, I just, it just felt like the right thing. And you, know, you get a little bit of nerves before the trip, but, um, you know, I just, I felt it was the right thing to do in my heart. I mean, I, I knew, you know, trying to jump into some other, 
you know, job around here was, was going to be the wrong decision. You know, I really wanted to, to take my time and, and make sure that whatever I did next was something I was passionate about, something that I really wanted to do for a long time and, and not just jump into the next gig because I need a paycheck. Right. So did you have like a, an itinerary? Like what, what were you, did you have a set amount of time? Um, and then you're like, I'm going to get a new job when I get back or were you kind of just open-ended trips? Yeah, it was very open-ended. In fact, it was a one-way ticket, basically, to, to – well, Indonesia doesn't let me do it, but I knew I wanted to go to Indo. You know, okay. that's that was one thing. I've always wanted to surf over there. So I spent two months just had a backpack, three surfboards, and a scooter, and I nice. was all over the place. You know, I rode uh, – I surfed G-Land all over Bali, took my little scooter over to Lombok uh, and over to Sumbawa. So, you know, I surfed Desert Point, Scar Reef, and you know, all these waves I've been watching for years and dreaming about it. Spent two months doing nothing but getting barreled out of my mind. Oh, and um, so you were you were down there. Did you have did you meet up with people or were you just kind of flying solo? Yeah, I was flying solo, and you know one of the things I was worried about is like you know you're gonna get lonely, you're gonna get bored, all these different things. But it's funny when you're traveling by yourself, it's a unique experience, and I you know I highly recommend it to you and anyone else you know that's thinking about it because you just it's it's great because number one you've got to put yourself out there. You know, you got to walk up to strangers and say hello or, you know, it's just you got to push your, you know, push yourself a little bit. And, and it's good for you to grow in that way and meet great people. But the other thing is you're more approachable. That's something I didn't really you know, think about. You know, when you're sitting around, you know, after a surf, having a meal and you're by yourself, people are more likely to come up to you, too. So, yeah, I constantly met interesting, cool people, was learning about their stories, what they do for work. Um, you know, it was really that it wasn't, you know. It wasn't until I got over to Australia I got more serious about trying to find exactly what I wanted. Uh-huh. The the Indo side of that trip was really just kind of meeting people and learning about things that they're doing and Indo and really looking for inspiration. Yeah, I feel like traveling alone for even like two months is you almost learn more about yourself and, and the world than like a year of college, I feel like. You, yeah, you really, I completely agree. You really understand. I was, I spent some time in Chile alone. I spent some time in, uh, like northern Spain alone, and it's, it's, it's incredible. So, so you said you're getting a little more serious. So you spent two months in in Indo and then Australia. How easy or like what what? I have no idea what aus- traveling in Australia is like. Can you can you kind of tell me like what your how that was? No, no, man, it's easy. That that country's built for it. It was uh-huh. great. Um, so, cause it was actually kind of funny. I mean, about a week before I left, um, I actually had a ticket to Vietnam and I was going to do like all of Southeast Asia and all this, but in Indo, I had met so many cool Aussies and they were all like, Hey, you make it to Byron Bay. You know, I got a place for you. If you come to Sydney, if you come to, you know, Gold Coast, all this stuff. And I finally just said, you know what? I've never been to Australia. I got to go. So, you know, I, I kind of just burned that ticket, bought a, bought a new one to Australia and, um, showed up and. Yeah, it was great. I bought a van. I was living in a van for six months over there. I actually even picked up a construction job for a little bit, which is something, you know, I've always wanted to improve my man skills, you know, yes. and yeah, it was awesome. We were, you know, doing demo and, you know, rebuilding, you know, different houses and I loved it. Build that skill set and, you know, lived in a van and traveled around surfing different spots. It was, it was incredible. So it's that easy. Just buy a van, get a job, find perfect waves. Sounds like you're living the American dream <laughs> in Australia. I think I got a little lucky though. It's it could be a little difficult to find the right kind of job. I found, yeah, I, I stumbled into some good people and a good gig. And and did you ever get the itch um, to come back home, get a like like kind of come home, or did you ever get homesick out there? 
Um, to be honest, I never did, you know, you know, miss family and friends, you know, from time to time, like, you know, I see there were some cool things going on and people that I missed, but yeah, no, I was, I was happy. You know, it was, it was really cool. Cal, you know, Australia, it's, it's a lot like California, but just even more chill, you know, more open space. It's, yeah, it's a really easy adjustment. I actually, you know, towards the end of the trip, you know, right you know, before I had my, kind of board club epiphany of, of all that uh, i was actually interviewing for tech jobs over there okay. it's like hey even though i was looking to get out of that industry they have, they have a much better work-life balance over there and there's somewhere i could see myself living so yeah i was gonna say like you you had the you had the board you had the van you had the waves why why did you come back yeah so that was my uh you know basically the the whole purpose of my trip was to figure out what i wanted to do next and um yeah, about six, you know, about five months into it, I was surfing this place called Guillotines, you know, south of Sydney. It's this heavy right slab, and I only had one board with me. It was this kind of more of a summer groveler, not much rocker, and it was just the wrong board for this spot. So, you know, I was kind of getting my butt kicked a little bit, you know, got a couple good barrels, but not nearly what I wanted. So I was a little frustrated and sitting there trying to figure out, you know, how do I get my hands on a, on a good board for this wave and, you know, for other spots. So I was looking around Australia, just online, talking to other guys, and just couldn't find it. You know, it was really difficult, and I knew that's a common problem back home too. And that's kind of when the light bulb went off. It's like, well, what if I had a whole bunch of boards, and then people could just, you know, have access to them? And um, you know, I was, uh, that light bulb went off, and, and I got to work at uh, little coffee shops, going around writing the business plan, you know, and then talking to other surfers and shapers, and um, yeah, that's really where it came from. And so you're sitting at Starbucks. Um, do, you, do how long uh, before you're back in the states and you're you're working on this thing? Oh, it was about a month. I mean, once I kind of got that bug in my head, and you know, in the first like day or two after, I kind of wrote just like a brief business plan. You know, just like, does this even make sense? Because you know, it's so simple. Why isn't anybody doing it? Right. At least that I know of or that I could find. You know, so. Um, you know, once I kind of did that initial research, I went, God, I think this is a legit idea. You know, that's when I really started diving into it and I got kind of obsessed with it. So um, at that point, you know, as I, the more and more I researched, the more we, I got that plan dialed in, I realized this was something I really want to do. And, you know, it only made, it made sense to do it in uh, Newport. You know, that's right. All my connections, it's a great place for, um, uh, you know, for, for a thing, you know, like the board club. So, um, yeah, it was pretty close. It was about a month. And and did you visit any? I'm assuming there were, there are board clubs in Australia. Did you visit any to kind of kind of scout them out and see what they're all about? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I was popping into different ones, um, you know, throughout the coast. Uh, I also had access to like the surf life saving clubs, so I kind of got a little feel of both. You know, okay. coming from the lifeguard side and the surfing side, and that was one of the main things. It's so when I had this epiphany, it was really more around just kind of get with kind of the board emphasis mm -hmm. you know, getting people the right boards. Uh, but then what I realized, um, is that those, you know, when I was in those different clubs, the community aspect is something that's definitely lacking here in California and, you know, pretty much around the States, you know, it's kind of like, I've got my group of friends within my local spot and, um, there's not a whole lot of people that are, that are, uh, you know, kind of coming together. And that was, now an important thing with the board club. So it's really two things I'm trying to do here. It's bringing the local community together, you know, whether that's with local shapers, local artists, all my retail products are local. You know, I have uh, a membership card for all the members and they get discounts at all the local businesses. 
So that aspect of it is super important to me, which is why at, uh, when I describe the board club, it's a surf club with boards. You know, I don't right. want to just be a demo shop. You know, it's it's a surf club with boards. That's that's something that's really important. And so you had this whole community uh, board club in mind. And when you land back in the states, how did you turn that into a reality? Yeah, so that actually it's it's definitely more uh, uh, difficult than I originally imagined. You know, I kind of thought, okay, the boards bring the people, and then people automatically, you know, will start hanging out. But um, yeah, you got to kind of like push people a little bit, hold their hand to kind of come to the, some of the, some of the events. And it's, it's, it's really the in-person stuff that that's really powerful. You know, you know, sometimes try people try and connect kind of online in the Facebook group and all these other ways, but it's really things like the members dinner that we hold once a month. Um, it's, it's a beach cleanup. It's all the in-person interactions where you know, people realize there's a lot of amazing people in this community and a lot of people have different things to offer, you know, whether it's a, business opportunity it's finding a buddy to surf with it's you know you're maybe you're new to the area and you want some you know some new friends to do something with on a weekend you know there's there's that people are looking for that right um it's really powerful could you describe like the physical location of the board club when you walk in the are you 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 see it you walk in the door kind of can you just describe the space yeah absolutely so uh, i got lucky with this spot we're, we're right on 31st street um you know, it's it's a short walk to the beach. I've got the bay that's about a minute away where people can get out on kayaks and stand up paddle boards. We've got you know, wild taco across the street. So the location's amazing, um, which gets great foot traffic. So a lot of times, you know, people are sitting across the street or walking by, and it's it's this old, you know, Newport beach house. It's, like, built cool. in the 50s. There's all these open, exposed beams and everything. So people walk in, and they're really curious because it doesn't look like your normal business. It kind of just looks like a house which is great to turn it into a surf club. So yeah, you walk in and I've got a little storefront where there's, uh, you know, some retail products. I usually have surf videos or, uh, you know, one of the WSL contests on. And, um, yeah, it's very warm environment. People are hanging out, you know, drinking their coffee in the morning or maybe a beer in the afternoon. And, um, it's a good little hangout spot. How does the membership work? Yeah. Membership. So it's $90 a month and a three month commitment. And then after that, they just pay, uh, you know, month to month, but it's great. So yeah, so we have over 180 boards and that's constantly growing and it's everything from single pins, twins, uh, long boards, short boards. I mean, it's a huge variety of, of different types of surfboards and you can take anything out for up to three weeks. You know, if you need a little bit longer, you know, just let me know if it's one of those things you're going on a trip and maybe you need two boards, you know, there's always different ways that, you know, we can, we can work with the members, um, but yeah, they can keep it up to three weeks, exchange as many different ones as they want. You know, there, there's some members that are in here almost twice a day. You know, they'll have a morning session on one board and then switch it out for something in the afternoon. Nice. So it's, I mean, you really do have 180 boards in your quiver when you sign up. And I see that you have a lot of different shapers. How, how do you approach the shapers and, and are they, are they shaping specifically boards for the board club? Yeah. So the pri primarily all the boards um, are built for the board club. And the way it works is so, like I mentioned before, this is the community is so important to me. So what I'm really trying to emphasize is local shapers, because I think there's something lost um, now with the surfer shaper relationship. You know, you know, people aren't necessarily talking to their shaper the way they used to, and I think that hurts the surfer. So what I try to do is is introduce shapers, you know, from the local area, which a lot of the times, you know, a lot of the local guys haven't heard of them, you know, but they might take a board out and absolutely love it. It's something different than they're used to. 
Um, and now they can go to the shaper, take that board with them, and have a you know a good conversation about what's working, what didn't work, what they like. And then you can fine-tune adjustments on that board to make sure that when you order a custom, you're going to get something you love. You know, rather than maybe going on you know, HaydenShapes.com and putting in your dimensions and ordering something. You know, I think there's a much higher probability you're going to get a board that's going to work for you when you can actually talk to the shaper and, and you've written something that, uh, you know, that's very similar that you like. And so let's say that I, I've taken out 10 boards. I find the magic board. I take it out at 56, get a huge barrel, close out, and it snaps in half. I come back to you. What, what's the process like? Yeah, that's, that's always one of the next questions when people are asking about the club. Yes. <laughs> you know, surfboards are fragile, you know, so and we all know that. So, um, yeah, we I kind of just try to split the cost, basically. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, the members aren't fully responsible, but at the same time, you got to get you gotta have some skin in the game or you know, guys will be taking my boards to wedge every day. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's one of those things. So, basically, members are responsible for anywhere from about 50 to 80% of the cost to repair or replace. Okay. So if you look at like a brand new board, if someone were to just snap it in half, which uh-huh. I do have to say I was the first person to do that in the club, <laughs> it's oh. just kind of funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, typically it's any, it'll cost you anywhere from like 300, maybe 350. But I'm also keeping track of, uh, you know, the conditions of the board. Okay. You know, if it's been around six months and it's got some dings and it's got some other issues, you know, then it might only be like 250 or, you know, 200 or something like that. So, um, but that's snapping a board. You know, I've been in right. business. I just hit the just hit the one year mark, and I've been in business this whole time. Only three boards have snapped, and I was one of them. Okay. The the bigger issue is probably just your regular old dings. Yep. So if it, if it's a smaller ding, something simple that we can fix here at the club, um, you know, there's no charge there. It's just hey, you hand me the problem, and you you grab a different board. You know, no no problem. Awesome. Uh, if it's something a little more serious, you know, like typical rail dings, it costs you thirty five forty bucks, and we take it into a you know repair shop. You know, I'll charge a member twenty, maybe twenty-five. Nice. But, yeah, the other nice perk of it though is, you know, as soon as you ding it, just drop it off. It's my problem now, and you go grab another one. What events have been really good, and have there ever been any events that have just been horrible, or just like yeah. not you like I'm not doing that again? Yeah. No, I mean this is a new business model, a new a new concept. So there's a lot of trial by error, which you know I I uh, <laughs> I pull my hair out sometimes on things because you put so much work, time, and effort, and you think something's gonna be great, and it flops, and then sometimes you go, oh, this will be all right, you half-ass it, and it's amazing. So, um, but I do have to say that by far the the best things that the members love and I love are the member dinners and shaper talks. Mm-hmm. So you, usually those are kind of held together. So at like usually like Friday at about six thirty, you know, once a month, I'll have free food and drinks for all the members. And that's a perfect opportunity for everyone to get together and meet new people, the new members, and it's just a great communal way to get everyone together. And then about an hour later, we usually have a local shaper come in and just have an informal, casual conversation about anything surfing related. You know, it can be into, you know, we've got a big wave one with Spencer Purdy and Roger Baltiera coming up soon. Nice. Um, Sometimes, yeah, sometimes guys want to talk about board construction materials. Sometimes it's design. You know, it's just a way, you know, it's, you know, feel free to ask dumb questions because there's probably someone else wondering the same thing. So it's, those are the ones that are really successful. Also just had an art fair. Uh, that was awesome. All local artists. We had probably 250 people come through throughout the day with live music, some Moscow mules. And that was really cool. The artists were stoked. The community was stoked. And, and so was I. Wow. That's awesome. And, and so kind of the, the future of the board club, so I'm sure you just, you're just now just starting it. How long is the, as the board club been, been around? 
So, um, yeah, as of a few days ago, we just hit the one-year mark, which is a huge milestone. Nice. You know, it's, you know I didn't know what to expect, right? When you start a new something new like this, and, you know, I, there were definitely people that were some doubters, you know, and, and you, know, you try not to let those things kind of affect you. But, yeah, to, to make it to this point, and things are good. Right now we've got 104 members kind of coming out of the, the winter that we had. I feel good about that. You nice. Know, basically we had zero members at this time last year, so. Yeah, we're we're trying to get to about anywhere from about one hundred and fifty to two hundred by the end of this summer, and then things are rolling. So and this is this is a big summer for me in the board club. That's awesome. And and like let's say like a couple years down the line, do you have any um, like expansion or how how would you make this thing bigger and or better? Yeah, no, great question. I mean, that's where this I think has the true potential is the expansion of the board club. So I'm trying to prove that the business model works here in Newport. And so far, so good. You know, I think I need one more big summer here and I'll feel confident about, uh, uh, you know, looking to expand. So um, probably looking at either like Ocean Beach in San Francisco or down in Manhattan Beach area, you know, South Bay, L.A. as the next spot where, you know, I'd like to start one. Uh I think there it's a very, it's very transient and I've got good ties into the local community there and some and some guys there. Uh, But after that, it's really a franchise model. Because, you know, if you're looking at Santa Cruz or Encinitas, you know, I, I, Peter Belden from Newport, can't go to those places and say, hey, I'm starting a local surf club. You right. know, what really makes us powerful is that the community runs it. And, and this is one of those things where, you know, I want someone from those towns to start their own. And then we have reciprocal membership. So you're up in San Francisco for the weekend or, you know, you're over in Florida or, I mean, hopefully, ultimately international. Maybe, maybe you're in Tokyo. You're in you know, Biarritz. You know, know these right. places, and you're no longer traveling with your surfboards. And at the same time, I say I show up to Ocean Beach Board Club, uh-huh. you know, in San Francisco. If I take my one of my little uh, potato chip, you know, board that's for Newport and try and paddle out there, I'm going to get my butt kicked. Right. So it's great if I can show up, show my membership card, grab a board that's built by a shaper for those waves, I mean, you're going to have a great time. When I first moved up to, to San Francisco, I could have really used that because I, um, I, I knew the waves were good. I took um, Muni with my surfboard and all my wetsuit, took Muni, or Bart <laughs> to Muni, and then I took Muni all the way down to Ocean Beach and uh, showed up. I had nowhere to put my stuff. Um, I had to like hide it in some bushes where there's all these kind of crazies hanging around that could steal it. And uh, nowhere to change. It would have been. It would have been very useful. So you got to get up here soon. No, seriously. No, it's I, the the pain of, of surfing up there is difficult. It's yes. Yeah, you know, it's a city. It's it's really hard. And if you could just have a spot by the beach, I think it solves a lot of problems for people. And yeah, I mean, there's a ton of potential. Awesome. Cool. Um. So perfect. I think that's all the questions that I that I kind of had, and I'd love to do a uh, round two when uh, after maybe uh, after this summer. And any, any, any kind of parting words for the, the audience that you want to let them know or where to follow you or find you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we have our Instagram, it's uh, the underscore board underscore club. Um, so you can find us there and we're always posting good stuff. You can go to the website, uh, newportboardclub.com and yeah, you know, if you're ever in Newport, I'd say come stop by, you know, it's super easy, casual, friendly. We'd love to have you come check out the boards. And we are doing some short-term rentals too. You know, if you're a traveling surfer from Florida and you don't want to bring your boards out, you know, I've got everything, you know, that you're going to need here. So, um, yeah, appreciate being on the show today. Perfect. Awesome. Well, well thank you, Peter. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll get some uh, people on your, your Instagram and into 31st Street. 
Love it. Awesome. Thank you, Taylor. All right. No problem, Peter.